Praise the Lord. This is it. This is the last service. Amen. I'm so thankful that I've gotten to be in the uh, Sunday, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday with all of you. I honor you all if you've been here every single night. I'm so thankful that you've made the time and you've sacrificed. And those of you who couldn't be here every night for different reasons, work and whatnot, I'm so glad you're here tonight. I honor each and every one of you. I was uh, telling Brother Walker and I was telling uh, Brother Williams this visit I've been here three times now, and this visit has been more intimate for me. I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to be in the presence of God with each and every one of you, and so thankful that I've been allowed to be here. Evangelizing works way better when you're invited. Amen. So thankful to be invited here and to be, most of all, trusted, and I never want to abuse that trust. So thank you to the Williams uh, for allowing me to be here. Love y'all, appreciate y'all, and honor y'all. It feels as though God has been strategically pushing us in a singular direction since Sunday. And it seems that if God were going to place a theme on this revival, I believe the theme would be peace. It's just what it feels like. It feels like that's what's been popping up every single service. And I just feel to stay in that vein. Amen. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 9... And uh, it's, I want you to pay attention here. This is important. It's a prophecy of our Savior. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called. Now, I want you to, I want you to pay close attention here. These are, these are the scriptures that are never quoted for some reason when someone who believes in multiple gods sitting on the throne, for some reason they don't quote this one to us. A child is born. We know what child that is, right? A son is given. We know who that is, right? Listen to what his name is. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Everlasting father. Well, how can he be the everlasting father if Jesus never got married or had kids? He did. He married the church, and everyone born again are his sons and daughters. So that's why his name his everlasting father. But I really like this portion of his name. He is Prince of Peace. Someone asked me uh, just, just last year, they said, I don't understand how he can be the Prince of Peace. I thought he was the king. <laughs> and I, I tried to explain to them that that's not what this is talking about. The word prince here is principality. He's a ruler. That word prince, he's the ruler of peace. His domain is peace. All the land that he owns is peace. So anybody that is now in his land has peace. Why? Why is that the case? Because he has borne our griefs, according to Isaiah. He's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace. It was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. I, I, I do know that it has been commonly taught that by his stripes we are healed is talking about, you know, miracles, physical healings. Um, I don't want to challenge that, but I do know that the context of Isaiah 53 is actually talking about our healing was we were sick with sin, that's, that's what we were sick with. 
And by the chastisement, the, it, that word in Hebrew means discipline. The beating that he took was to heal us. Not, not just of the cancers and all of those things, but to heal this sin sickness that we have been born in and shapen by. And by doing so, he gave us what he owned. Now, this is so important. This is why I just keep wanting to drive this, drive this. We cannot get away from the gospel. I know that it's old news. I know that you've heard it. I know that we like new revelation. There is nothing better on this planet than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's why. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. What does that mean? He took what was supposed to be ours. That beating on the cross, that was ours. We are supposed to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was supposed to look at us and say, depart. That was, that was our destiny and there was nothing that could fix it until the beating that he took that we deserved. He took what was ours and gave us what was his. Peace. Peace is his. And he said, I'll take a beating so you can have what's mine. I am the principality of peace. I am the ruler of peace. And I want all of you to have that. And so I want to stay in that vein. Now I want to read our opening text now that we've set that foundation. I don't like to preach unless there's a foundation. I don't like to preach unless there's a lot of scripture because I like the Bible. Amen. Psalm 139, 13. And I want to... I believe wholeheartedly there's going to be a move of God here tonight. I believe that there's going to be an impartation and a, a revelation. I believe that a revelation is powerful because when you receive a revelation, it burrows its way down into your soul and it convinces you of something. A revelation is not just some flippant thing of like, oh, I get it now. A revelation is it's now in you and it changes everything. When you know something, have you ever had the light bulb go off and you're like, oh, man, yeah, I wish I'd have known that before. I wish I would have known that you could use a crowbar to change the belt on a lawnmower rather than a screwdriver. That would have been amazing to know a, bust, a few busted knuckles ago. That would have been great news. And when you get the revelation, everything in the future changes. That's what I feel is going to happen here tonight. I believe there's going to be a revelation of peace, and I believe you precious people are going to walk in peace and I believe that the devil is going to have a hard time taking it from you. Amen? Amen. Do you believe that? Yes. All right. Psalm 139, 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows it right well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance. That word is embryo in the original language, being yet unformed. This is good scripture right here if you want to, you know, if you want to be an advocate for, um, for life. If you, don't, if you don't like abortion, this is the great scripture right here for you because you, his eyes saw your embryo before it was even in the womb. And listen to what he says. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me, the future, the future fashioned for me when yet there was no days in front of me yet. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. 
The psalmist here, David, is keying in on something powerful, and when we get it, the devil's going to have a hard time getting it out of your mind. When you get this revelation, there's going to be a lot less busted knuckles, and you're going to say, man, if I'd have known this before, things will change. But tonight, things change. I want you to thrust those hands up into heaven, and if you have been losing sleep, if you have been fretting about your ministry, if you have been worrying about if God can use you, if you've been worrying about anything, that ends tonight in the name of Jesus. I come with authority, not by any of my own, but because of the relationship I have with his name, and I come with power because of the relationship I have with his word. So Father, the work that will be done here tonight is by your name and your word, and I will stand on it and put all all of my faith into it and I will declare it and I believe that when it goes forth it's going to go into war against every anxiety that exists in this room I cast down by the help of the spirit anxieties and the Lord rebukes the adversary that has been wearing out the saints I believe that after this service tonight they will walk into end time authority harvest revival and calling and they will walk into it with certainty they will walk into it father I believe with absolute authority in the name of Jesus what you do tonight God I trust it and I can see it already being done on the lives of your people father convince us of what you have purchased for us in the precious name of Jesus would you just clap your hands would you declare unto God what you want from him tonight if you want to walk in peace it is available in this room I can already feel it hovering in the atmosphere and God is going to rain it down upon every one of us tonight in the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. It was at the end of 2007 and going into the beginning of 2008 that there was a strike held by the Writers Guild Association. This is the association comprised of screenwriters for Hollywood films. In their strike rules, the guild declared that all actors were prohibited from any improvisation. They said there will be no casual or minor adjustments in dialogue or narration made prior to or during the period of filming. In fact, a woman named Eileen Starger, who is the vice president of casting for Walt Disney and Touchstone Pictures, said it this way. She says, one can compare a Hollywood script to a musical score. And just as a musician wouldn't deviate from the notes... Why do we think that actors can change words to suit their own way of saying things? When an actor changes words in a scene, she said, they alter the rhythm of not just their lines, but of the entire scene. Adding words, removing them, or switching the order of them will disrupt the flow and can sometimes change the writer's intent for the characters. Basically, the writers of these Hollywood films got sick and tired of A-list, posh, self-promoted uh, actors for they were frustrated with them for mutilating their well thought out and beautifully written stories and I feel that this is a powerful way to view scripture because 43 percent of your bible is a narrative and 33 percent of your bible is poetry the remaining 24 percent is law sermons and letters this vast majority of this book is a narrative, a narrative filled with real life characters that heard God's script and they said, I will be obedient to whatever you say. Whatever you have written, that's what I want to get into. Whatever you have said about me, that is what I will do. 
we have a problem with changing the scripts. And we think that, okay, God, you have wrote this, so let me modify it a little bit. I believe that I could do it a little bit better. God, if you did this, I believe that this could happen. And I believe that this is such a fascinating way to read scripture because Genesis 1 starts with an unlimited budget and a visionary writer who builds a stage set, and he calls it Earth. He places marquee lights in the sky called the sun and one in the night called the moon. He sets the main key light and he calls it day and the background light he sets, he calls it night. He spared no expense setting up the props for the screenplay. He gave this screenplay trees, grass, mountains, and he even put live animals on the set. Once the lights were in position and everything was placed on set, this master writer slash director then executes one of the most important parts of a feature film. He casts the characters. He gets some no-name guy from down in the slums called Earth and gives him the role of a lifetime. His stage name would be Adam. And the story introduces him to Eve. And these two characters literally only had one line that they had to memorize for the screenplay. The only line on the entire script was, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. So what could go wrong? That's We're going to get in character, scene one, take one, action. The actors immediately got out of character in a brief moment when Adam forgot his position because we don't even know where he's at when Eve is being tempted of the, of the Satan. We have no clue where Adam's even at in this position. Eve forgot her lines when she quotes the word of God back to the serpent incorrectly. And the writer slash director cries out, cut, cut. And he performs a very gracious script revision by putting a new costume on them from leaves to animal skins. Because when failures are a part of the business, the director has to be skilled at some script revisions. And if you go through the screenplay of the Bible, you're going to see that this brilliant writer has employed different people to live out the narrative of what he wanted to write. The entire story from the failure in the garden would immediately be redemption. I know we have a lot of debates about the Bible, but the main theme of this book is we got away from him and he wants us back. And so he is going to write an entire Bible filled with human characters that, that covered the landscape of history in order to get us back into relationship with him. That is the vast theme of the Bible. And to do this, he starts with a movie, it would seem. It's a post-apocalyptic narrative with lots of water to tell the story of starting over. He looks for someone he can trust with divine deconstruction, and he finds a man named Noah, which is the Hebrew word for rest. And he calls Noah, and the script written is already done. He says, Noah, I've already got an amazing script. I just need you to get in character. I need you to obey everything I've said, and I'm going to hand you the script, and I need you to build it. And Noah begins constructing an ark out of wood. Why? Because the adversary got us away from God with the tree, and so God is going to masterfully write into the narrative how he's going to get us back into covenant with a tree. And so he begins to make this ark, and then all of a sudden the floodwaters come, and the ark rises above. And it's important to note that the, the ark that God had Noah build, the Bible explicitly tells us that it had an upper deck, a middle deck, and a lower deck. 
There were three floors inside of one boat, had one door in the side, and that was the salvation. Right here, God was masterfully writing his own identity as all of the fullness of the Godhead dwelling within one vessel. This was his salvation that would save mankind, and it had an upper deck, middle deck, and lower deck, but there's not three boats, and it didn't have a rudder or a steering wheel. Noah couldn't drive the thing. He was at the mercies of where the boat went when the waters moved it. This is telling us how we are to respond in the future. And all of a sudden, this ark in this narrative lands on top of a mountain that is called Ararat, which is funny because that's the Hebrew word for cursed. God's salvation landed on top of a cursed hill in this narrative. And when that man, Noah, comes out of that boat and he's on top of a cursed hill, Brother Williams, he builds an altar and God smells the sweet-smelling savor of a sacrifice. And he comes down upon that cursed hill when he smells the smell of sacrifice. And he says, I will never again destroy the earth with water, even though the thoughts and intents of man's heart are still evil. And Noah's probably thinking to himself, if we're still evil and now you're making a promise that you won't destroy us even though we haven't changed, what changed, God? And God would tell us within the narrative, the thing that changed is a a sacrifice on a cursed hill that gave way to a covenant by a rainbow in a physical form. That's what changed and that's what will change you. You see the amazing story that just begins to develop right out the gates. He moves on because he's going to keep pushing this story forward. I want someone who leaves home as well as the family business to start a journey of a lifetime. I need to go find somebody from the tribe of Shem. I need to go find somebody out of one of Noah's sons because Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And God said, okay, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham and Japheth have gotten a little out there. They're they're a part of the nations. Out of them come all of the African descent and and the Western descent. And so I'm going to go and get Shem, and I'm going to find a man out of the line of Shem. Why is that in the Bible? Why is that part of the story? The name Shem is the Hebrew word name. (laughs) Don't you think that fascinating? That God went and found a man out of the line of name, and he gave him this calling. He said, come out from among them and I will make your name great. And someday your line through the Jewish people is gonna give birth to a man with a name above all names. This is right from the beginning and it's the most beautiful story ever told if we get into our Bibles and begin digging it out. Out of the line of Shem, Hebrew word name, came the name above all names. Jesus wasn't born out of the line of Ham or Japheth. He came out of the line of name because to him was going to be given a name and he was going to redeem all of the people from Ham and Japheth. All sons and daughters come home when the name shows up. And so he just needs somebody though. He needs an Abram to get into the script. And so Abram says, okay, I'll sign up. I want to be in this stage play and I want to obey everything you're saying. I want to get right in the middle of what you're doing in this end time story that's leading to salvation. And so he does. And he looks at him one day and he says, okay, look, bro, I'm going to rename you because you come out of the line of name and names are really important. So I'm going to rename you from Abram to Avraham, which is the Hebrew phrase, father of a multitude. And so he calls him father of a multitude and he says, all right, Father of a multitude, I need you to kill your son. Not just your son, your only son. And not just your only son, the one you love. 
Early the next morning, something wild happens. Father of a multitude rises out of the bed early. He looks at his, they approximately believe that Isaac was about 40 years old. He says, come on, son, we're gonna go up and we're gonna offer sacrifice unto the Lord. And he starts carrying wood. And you gotta understand, there's no Hebrew word for wood. They don't have adjectives like that. The Hebrew word says that he was carrying a tree up that mountain. And there's the son carrying a tree up that mountain. And when he goes up there, he lays upon that tree. And right up on top of that mountain, he's laying on a tree and father of a multitude rears back that knife. Why would he do this? Why is Abraham doing such a barbaric thing? Because he's putting his faith in the name. Isaac can't die. My name is father of a multitude. He's the one who gave me that name and he's the one who gave me this boy named Laughter. I've got joy and faith in my midst. There's nothing that can happen right now. So I'm gonna put all my trust in the name he gave me and that's what's gonna make this whole thing work. He rears back with that knife and sure enough, the voice from heaven says, father of a multitude, father of a multitude, don't take thy son, thy only son, for now I know. Turn around and look, there's another tree. There's the tree that your son's laying on, but there's also another tree on this mountain. What does that sound like? That sounds a lot like Genesis where there was two trees. And he looks at Father of Multitude and he says, pick a tree. Make sure you pick the right one though because this has been a problem with humanity and it was a no-brainer in the mind of Father of a Multitude because he says, why would I pick this tree when that tree over there with the substitute in it is available? I'm gonna pick that one and lo and behold, he picks the substitute lamb that was gonna be slain and he said, you know what? I'll pick that every single time over death. That's the one that's gonna keep me with my joy. That's the one that's gonna keep me with my laughter. I will choose that one every single time. We got this amazing story because a man named Abraham and a man named Isaac got into the script and they said, we're not changing the lyrics. We're not changing the wording. We're gonna do everything he says and people are gonna read this in the future and they're gonna be edified. And this is all still pointing forward. He also wanted to have individuals that would be in the play as well. This master screenwriter has cast all throughout the Bible, the elderly. He's cast teenagers. He's cast children, little kings that would grow up and at eight years old rule all of Israel. He's cast men. He's cast women. He even cast some harlots and she was a part of the narrative. And it was Rahab, the scarlet that was, the the harlot that was saved by the scarlet. All of that was just a symbol of the blood that was going to be told later. He cast outsiders, people that weren't even Jewish. He cast no-name actors and high-profile actors. The prophets that weren't even named, they didn't even have their names in the end credits of this film. And this master screenwriter said, I will cast anybody who is willing to get into this thing and to move the story of redemption forward. I want anybody that will get into this thing, but if you start changing the wording, you're gonna disrupt this whole beautiful tapestry that I'm weaving together and something's gonna be missed. And so I need you to stay right inside the plan. Why? Because our opening text in Psalm 119 said, Everything that I would ever be was written in a book. In his story, even the seemingly small secondary characters played a huge role in the development of this plot of salvation. The prophets whose names weren't even mentioned. The little, the little women like, like you have Abigail who doesn't have a whole lot of lines, but she's crucial to the story of David moving forward into his calling. Everybody, no matter how small the role, no matter how many times they're repeated, or if you don't even know their name, everyone who made it into this book and followed his wording is absolutely crucial. 
This is why I don't stress and worry, and this is why I have peace. God, I don't have to do anything of any extravagance so long as I'm in that book, so long as I am pushing this thing forward. It doesn't matter if my name's in lights. It doesn't matter if I'm somebody special. As long as I'm in the book, it doesn't matter if my name's at the end of the title credits. Just as long as I am trusted with walking in this book. But before any of these people that I've mentioned had a role, God, our marvelous author, already had a script. David understood this, which is why he penned in the opening text. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's wombs. So I'm going to go ahead and praise you because I was fearfully and I was wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows it right well. My frame, these bones that's inside my body that I can't even see, they weren't hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my embryo when it was unformed and in your book they are all written the days fashioned for me when there was none of them before I was one day old one year old two year old you already saw me at one year old you saw me at two years old you saw me at three years old you saw me in the field killing a lion you saw me in the field killing a bear you knew that that would be the thing that would lead me to a giant you knew the giant would just be a little bitty taste of pain when I would have to taste the other giant named Saul and God you saw all of that and yet you still chose me God you saw me when I would fail with Bash and you still knew and you still called me and I got to show you my confession I got to show you my repentance and God I am so thankful you've trusted me with this kingdom but like Adam we see the people have a hard time letting God be the author and finisher Israel began to sin through transgression and iniquity we see that they're missing the mark We see that they are breaking covenant, which is transgression. We see that they are walking away and they're distorted and bent because they're filled with iniquity. God loved them so much, though, that he's not going to stop the story. He's going to keep writing this thing. He loved them so much. He said, I'm not breaking covenant. This is why the Bible shows us with Abram. Before he ever became Abraham, there's this little bitty story that we just kind of overlook. It says that God made a covenant with Abram. And Abram took three animals that were all three years old, and he cut them in half, and he threw them on the floor, and he walks between the pieces. No, that's not what it says. It said that God walked between the pieces. Why? It was an old way of making a covenant, Brother Walker, that whenever you cut animals and you split them in half and throw them on the floor, when both parties walked between the distorted animals, it was a way of making a covenant. And the reason why they did that is they were saying, if one of us breaks the promise, may what has happened to these animals happen to us. But in the story of Abram, he kills the animals, cuts them in half, throws them on the floor, and he never walks between the animals, but the presence of God does. Why? Because God is showing us, even if you break covenant, I'll take the penalty. Even if you break away what has happened to these animals, I'll put it on myself so that you can get back into the narrative. He did not develop a plan B, church. We are plan A. 
In our mistakes, we're plan A. When, when we mess up, he's going to heal. He's going to reconstruct. He's going to work it out. He's going to continue working with us. That's why we don't want to abuse this grace. I want to continue walking forward because I want to stay in the script that he has. He has a calling for every single one of us. And we would be so wise that we would just get into that character and we wouldn't change the lines. We wouldn't try to deviate from it. We wouldn't try to call ourselves. We wouldn't try to do something we weren't designed to do. We would just get into the pattern and rhythm of what he's doing because every single time you do, it moves the story of redemption further forward into the end times. This is why Peter says, you must hasten the return of the Lord. How can we hurry up a rapture? It's when people get into character. It's when people say, okay, this is what I'm called to do. I'm not trying to do what you're called to do. I'm going to do what I'm designed to do, and I'm going to walk in peace and faith and joy because this is how I contribute to the body and move the thing forward. But it's when we start getting out of character that we slow down the end time harvest. We slow down the return of the Lord because he is patient towards us, giving us time to repent is what Peter says. He's given us time to get it right. He's looking at us and he's saying, okay, let me send him a pastor. Let me send him a prophet. Let me send him an apostle. Let me send him an evangelist. Let me send somebody that's in character to show them how to get in character. While in exile, God sent a prophet that would explain to them why they were there. Listen to how God calls this prophet. It's a young man named Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 1 verse 4, he sees his people in exile. They got out of character. It was not the will of God for them to be in exile. They were supposed to be in the promised land. But God told Solomon, if you don't obey my commands, I will spew you out of this good land the same way I did the Amorites. So stay in character, Solomon. They didn't do it, so now they're out of character, and God just completely gives up on them. That's not what he does. He says, okay, you got out of character, and this is Old Testament, mind you. You got out of character. Let me send you somebody who's in character to get you back in character. And this is how God calls the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I was sanctifying you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God comes to a young Jeremiah with a pre-written script. And if this young man would submit to the script, then he would be used to get all of Israel back on the mark that they missed. But allowing God to be the author seems intimidating to this young prophet because this young prophet, when he hears this, he responds to God and he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. And the Lord responds to him. He says, do not say that I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you're going to speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand. He touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I've put the whole script inside of you, Jeremiah. Your job just got way easier. You got nothing to stress out about, Jeremiah. It's all been downloaded into your soul, what I've called you to do. And I knew you were going to do it before you were ever born. I was looking at you today before today ever showed up. This should give you an overwhelming, an overwhelming peace right now. That what in the world are we worried about? 
If God looked at Jeremiah and says, don't stress about your youth, I got that covered because I'm gonna put inside you a pre-written script and all you have to do is look into your soul and obey what has been written and go out and do that. Stick to the script, Jeremiah. It's all written. Just go and live it. I'm the author. Let me be the finisher. Since God was not so high and lifted up that he couldn't be moved by the feelings of our infirmities, though, he humbly walked through the story he was writing and he entered into the stage play that he designed and that name that was called upon him in Isaiah 9, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace came and all of those attributes was mashed up and put inside of one vessel just like that ark. All of the upper deck, middle deck, lower deck was all packed into one vessel and they called that vessel Jesus, which is the Hebrew phrase, Yahweh saves. There is nothing better than the name of Jesus because it literally means that he is able to save us. And this is why I won't baptize in anything else other than the name of Jesus, not because it's a tradition, not because I was raised on it, not because I'm a Pentecostal. None of that matters to me, a hill of beans. It's the fact that it's in the Bible and that name literally means Yahweh saves. If I'm gonna be baptized, this is what I wanna do. I wanna call on the name that says, come and save me. When I call on that name, he hears my faith that says, they still believe I can save. And when we say that name, he responds to, they believe I can save them. And he comes into the room and what does he do? He does what he is. He doesn't perform. He comes into the room and he is salvation. And all of that embodied in one vessel enters into the stage play and he walks amongst us. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for your sin you had no pleasure then I said behold this is what it's saying right here hear this then I said behold I have come this is Jesus is talking about I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, oh God. Are you telling me that Jesus had a book? He had a book long before he had a body. Jesus Christ, God Almighty in the flesh, was the book that was at the foundations of the earth, and God was sitting there, and he says, at an appointed time, when all these other characters live out the stage play, they're gonna see how powerful I really am. They're gonna see that the father, Abraham, couldn't do it. They're gonna see that the laughter, Isaac, couldn't bring true joy. They're gonna see that the harlot with the scarlet, her blood and that blood hanging out that window, it couldn't truly save. They're gonna see that that lamb couldn't remove sins eternally and that's going to be the perfect setup for when I show up and sure enough that volume of that book that was pre-written from the foundation of the earth enters into the world and we see right then and there oh my God this is what we've been looking for we thought we wanted a king but Saul showed us we needed something more than a king so we wanted a king and a prophet and so we got David he was a king and a prophet and we were disappointed because we, we still needed more we need a king a prophet and a judge and so we get all of this in the Old Testament, but then Jesus shows up and he is a king, he says. He's a judge. He is a prophet. He is the sacrificial lamb, but he does what we weren't expecting because he's more than a king. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a judge. He looks at us and he says, I am God. 
Those things you wanted and you saw in the Old Testament could never do it, and so it was the perfect setup. God has infinite wisdom to give us in the moment what we don't need so that he can ultimately give us what we do need because he needs to show us the two paralleled against each other because if he right out the gates gave us what we needed, we would get arrogant and say, yeah, I knew that the whole time. This is why he's going to release the devil during the millennial reign. After we've been reigning for a thousand years, he's going to release Satan one more time. Do you know why? Because we'll probably get arrogant all over again and say, we could have done this without you, Lord. And he's going to be fully justified during the millennial reign by letting Satan loose for a season and a time. And we'll be tempted all over again because we're failures. And God's going to be fully justified. And he said, see, no matter what, you're always going to fall. You will forever need me. He's going to give us a little moment so that he'll give us some wisdom. And that's what he's doing right here. He said, I gave you the whole Old Testament to show you that it'll never work without me coming into the play. And so by the book that was written, it was published, and now I can be what I am. I can be salvation. He walked through the props he created. He acted out the storyline that was written about him from the foundations of the earth. And he showed us the character that each of us were supposed to get into. If you want to know what your lines are, if you want to know the character you're supposed to be in, you look no further than the gospels and you look at the man Jesus because that's what we're supposed to act like that's what we're supposed to talk like that's what we're supposed to look like that's how we're supposed to be we're supposed to be disciplined like him loving like him strict like him everything that we were ever supposed to be that's why the Bible says for to those to whom I did foreknow them did I predestine to be conformed into the image of Jesus we have always been called from the foundations of the earth to look like the second Adam the man Jesus and we see him along with 12 other actors playing in a role in an outdoor scene one day and on this particular scene there's 5,000 extras on the set and Jesus asks one of the characters named Philip he says hey where can we buy bread so that these people can eat and the Bible said that he did this to test Philip to see if he would stay in character and stick to the script you got to understand that the Lord will test us to see if we really trust what he's writing Philip responds, Master, it's not in the budget. There's 5,000 extras on the set. How do you want us to feed these people? But one of the extras, a little unnamed boy that we don't even think is important in the grand scheme of things pointing forward, he crops up in the middle of nowhere and he gets a chance to be like Christ for a little moment. And he had no lines, but he moves the entire story of redemption forward. One more story. And he comes and he says, here, I'll sacrifice my lunch. And that little boy's faith was multiplied and the 12 elect got to see what happens when a no-name gets gets into character and he comes and they said oh we didn't know you were capable of doing this by somebody just sacrificing their lunch and God says imagine what I can do when you sacrifice yourself and I put you into the play if I can do this with an obedient fish and some obedient bread from an obedient unnamed little boy what can I do with an obedient person made in my image that's the thing we need to be asking ourselves but the climax of his story would not be here The climax of the book of Jesus would be the cross. We all know the story. We know the ending. But I want to focus on the last words of his script. In John 19, 30, it says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The screenwriter, the director, and now the actor, all three wrapped into one, would submit himself 
to the script that was written from the foundations of the earth. How did he do this? Well, let's hit rewind. And let's look at Matthew 26. When scene two, scene one was the garden in Genesis. Scene two is the garden in Matthew. Let's look at scene two where the better Adam is getting into character when the first Adam didn't. The second Adam said, I'm gonna do and I'm gonna say the lines that the first Adam never got to say. He was a setup to show you a better Adam. And this better Adam is in the garden and this is what he says. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Do you want to know how you get into character? You want to know how you live the perfect plan of God for each and every one of your individual lives? You want to know how you do this thing? You have to live a lifestyle of not my will, Thy will be done. That's how you step into the character. That's how you act out the roles. That's how you do what he has called you to do. When you say, I don't have a clue what's going on, but you do, and whatever you want to do is fine with me. You have to have the mentality that Jesus' mother had. Whatever he says to you, do it. You see, there's been this funny thing that's been going on, Brother Williams. I've been traveling, and God God has commissioned me. This is what he's done. He said, I want you to go to and fro throughout the United States. I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. He said, I'm going to highlight people's offices to you. I'm going to point out to you them if they're, if they're an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher. I'm going to point that out to you. And I want you to ask them a question. I said, okay, Lord, what would you have me ask them? He said, I want you to ask them when they think I was most successful. I said, okay. And so I've been traveling. And when I come across the apostles, I'll ask them, hey, When do you think Jesus was most successful? And the apostles most often tell me. It's not 100%, but most often I hear them say, well, it was when God left heaven and came to earth because apostle means sent one. That's what that word actually means in Greek. It's, they say he was successful when he was sent from heaven to earth. And I say, okay. I go back to the Lord in prayer and I say, Father, this is what they have said. He said, okay, now go ask the prophets when they think I was most successful. So I come across prophets and I say, when do you think Jesus was most successful? And they say, it was when he looked at the Pharisees and he gave them the seven woes. And he says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. He's rebuking them. It was when he called them a brood of serpents because prophets point things out. They find the sin that's hidden. They can see it. They call it out. They have a critical eye and they're called not to get a critical spirit. And so I went back to the father and I said, this is what they've said. He said, okay, I want to send you to the evangelist. I asked the evangelist, when do you think Jesus was most successful? And the evangelist always tells me, they say, well, it's when he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He, went, he told the, the disciples, go into the highways, into the hedges, and compel them to come. And so I go back, tell the Lord these things. He says, now ask the pastor. I ask the pastor, when is Jesus most successful? And the pastors most often tell me, it's when he was standing on the mountain and he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And so I asked the teachers, when was Jesus most successful? And they say, it was when he was teaching in the synagogues and he confounded them with great knowledge. And they called him rabbi. That's when he was most successful. And so after I was done, I went to the Father in prayer and I said, okay, this is what they have said. And he looked me in the eye in prayer and he poured himself into my spirit and he says do you want to know when I say I was most successful I said yes tell me when do you say you were most successful he said in Matthew 26 when I said nevertheless not my will but thy will be done and he said I want you to correct the ministry he said because they're identifying 
through their office and they're not identifying with me. You see, prophecies will cease. There will be no need for apostles at the rapture. There's no need for evangelism at the rapture. There is no need for teaching. All of that's gonna end. So why would I identify in something that is temporal? I would rather identify in what is eternal, and that is the man Jesus. I am in no way saying that those things aren't important, but what is most important about what I am doing is the fact that God asked me to do it, and I said, okay, I will. That is the whole point. If that's prophesy, then I'll do that. If that's apostle, I'll do that. If that's pastoring, I'll do that. But I didn't call myself. He saw that in the beginning before I was born, and he just asked us to do it, and we said, okay, I will because whatever we are is not the important part. What we're doing in obedience is the important part. Don't identify with what is temporal. I want you to begin identifying in what is eternal. We move forward in our callings and in what God has designed us to do when we simply say, not my will, but thy will be done. It doesn't matter if it's hard. If it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if it doesn't feel important. If God asked it of you, it is of intrinsic value. We're gonna stand before him and he's gonna open up a book of works. That book is all wrapped around what he asked of us to do. And he's going to look at us and say, okay, I asked you to do this. I heard somebody say this one time, oh, I don't want to stand next to the martyrs one day in heaven. I looked at them and I said, why not? And they said, because I haven't died for this faith. I said, that's because God hasn't asked you to die for this thing. If he asked you to do it, then you need to do it. But if he hasn't, you're not going to be judged as a martyr. The martyrs will be judged as a martyr. You need to do what he's asked you to do and stop fretting about who's better in this kingdom because we're getting no better than the disciples when they argued who's the greatest amongst us. That's not the question. The question is who's gonna be the most obedient amongst us. Whoever's obedient, we're all on even playing field. Nobody's more important than the other. The apostle's not more important than the prophet. The prophet's not more important than the, the, the evangelist. We all have equal load. The important thing is that we stop changing the script. The kingdom is going on strike and it's putting everything on pause and it's looking at us and saying, hold up, hold up. We need to get this thing realigned. We need to get this thing back in order. You need to do what you've been designed to do. You need to get in that lane and you need to walk in it. It doesn't matter if it feels important. It doesn't matter if you feel terrified. If I ask you to do it, I'm gonna give you the strength to do it. If it feels intimidating, don't worry about that because if I called you to do it, it's gonna be fine. All of this is getting into character. Jesus never once got out of character. He stuck to the script even when he didn't love of the role that was given to him. Is it possible that this cup can pass from me? It tells us that sometimes what we're called to do isn't fun and we have to go and wrestle with it in prayer. And he wrestled with it and he said, is it possible that this cup can pass from me? No? Okay. This is what's written of me. I'll do it. He moved the whole redemption plan forward by obedience. This is not a message that I just studied one day. The Williams is not something that I just was reading the Bible and I said, oh man, that'll preach. I'll confess to you and tell you where this whole thing's born from and why I'm so passionate and convinced of this. I am eternally convinced of what I'm preaching right now. And that's why I believe there's angels in this room backing it up because I'm not a hypocrite with this message. I am living this to the uttermost, not by my own power, but because God revealed it to me. And when he reveals something to you, you're convinced of it. And here's why I'm convinced of it. I have been evangelizing five years now. I've been traveling full time. 
And the first year when I was traveling, it was the worst thing ever. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand traveling because every Sunday felt like a job interview. And every Monday felt like this. Well, did I get the job? As we say, did I shuck the corn? Was it good? And I quickly realized I'm not Chris Green. I'm not Mark Drost. I'm not David Smith. I'm not Victor Jackson. If you don't know who I'm talking about, these are people who travel. And so I wondered, I thought to myself, I'm not doing it like those guys. This isn't going to work. And I was stressed out. I had anxiety. About 90% of my anxiety was because of my pride. I didn't want to go back to my home church with my tail tucked between my legs and walking back in and be like, well, it just didn't work. This whole traveling thing just didn't work. I couldn't be sustained in, the, in that calling, and I blew it. And I was so afraid to go back home because it was going to be embarrassing. I'm just being honest with you. And so I didn't know what else to do. So it was going into the second year, and I just was like, I can't do this another year. This is too much. I, 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 can't, I don't like this. I'd much rather just go back and sit in an office and write curriculum for the church and do discipleship programs. I'd much rather do that because this is horrible. And so all I knew to do was to go lock myself away and get, get near to the Lord. And so I did. I felt compelled to go on a three-day fast. And so while I was on this three-day fast, when I was starting it, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm shutting my mouth and not eating. I may as well not even speak. I may as well just sit in total silence and let the Father put a prophetic word in my mouth. So I did for three days straight. I didn't say a word. I just sat in my office and I was meditating on the Lord. I was reading his word. I was seeking after him. And on that third day, something happened to me. Something came all over me. I cannot explain it to you, but I was in prayer. And all of a sudden, when I opened my, my eyes, I was not in that third bedroom of my house, my little prayer room. I was somewhere else. I was standing on the shoulder of God and I could see the side profile of his face and when I looked down it looked like he was a thousand feet tall and I looked in front of him and there was this big desk and there was books all in front of him there was an entire shelf it went endlessly in the left direction and endlessly in the right direction I couldn't see its beginning or its end and from top to bottom I saw I, it was an innumerable amount of books and I just saw him covering this whole shelf and I looked at him and he reached up and he grabbed a book and I could see my name written on the spine of that book he grabbed that book and when he did I could see my name AJ Holloway on it he brought it down to that desk and he thumbed through the page and I saw every page they were all blank and he landed on page one and I watched him he took a pen and he began to write he said I'm going to put him into the world in 1986 that's when he'll be born and I'm going to put him into the home I'm going to trust him with John and Carolina Holloway they will raise him and he'll be raised in a pastor's home and I'm going to expose him to my presence he's going to be in the midst of the will of God all his life he's going to see things he's going to feel things and this is how I'm, I'm not going to do this forever everybody it's going to be different for every book but for this book this is the way his is written and I watched him he was just passionately writing and I saw he flipped a few pages and he said 
the age of five, I'm going to give him his first sermon. He's going to be standing outside of the church, and he's going to look at a plant, and I'm going to begin speaking to him, and he's going to get his first interaction with my voice at the age of five. And he's going to know by looking at a flower that, that, that he is that flower, and that flower will not be sustained without water. That flower cannot live unless it's planted, and that flower cannot live unless it's pruned. And in that, he's going to get a revelation, and he'll run and go tell his dad, and his dad will look at him and say, son, you might be a preacher someday. And and that'll be the moment, and he'll think about that all his life. But later on in life, I'm going to let him see a church split, and I'm going to let him see how ugly this whole ministry thing is. I'm going to let him be at home one day where some angry saints are going to egg his father's house and slice all the tires on their cars. And I'm going to let him see a bitter father, and I'm going to let him see an angry mother. And I'm going to let, let him sit with this because I want him to be called to do this even though he knows it's going to be ugly at times. I want him to see the grittiness of it. And I'm not going to shield him from the pain of this call because if he still chooses it, he's going to choose it because he is called to do it, not because he thinks there's any notoriety in it. So I'm going to allow all these things to weave in and out of his life and story. He's going to run from the call of God until the age of 19, but he's going to be in Florida with his uncle who is a pastor in New Orleans. And he thinks he's going to be going to Florida to meet girls. But what he's actually going to do is he's going to have yet another experience with me. And at the age of 19, he's going to baptize eight gang members in a water fountain in the middle of a park in Florida and that's going to be the night where he falls to his face and he's going to say God if you let me do this the rest of my life I will minister this gospel he's going to go home at the age of 19 and sell his sports car and buy him an SUV so he can pick up guests for church and I'm going to show him I'm going to allow him to see that there's going to be Hurricane Katrina and there's going to be 5,000 people move into his city and he's going to go from he's going to see that church that he was raised in of 30 people go from 30 to 300 when you evangelize your city and I began to see all of this written and he said I'm going to allow him to get married and he's going to meet his wife on day 28 of a 30 day fast and he's going to get married to her and they're going to have a beautiful baby and I watched him pause for a moment and I saw tears running down his cheeks and I saw tears falling on this book in this vision and he began to weep and he says I'm going to give him a son but his son's book's not going to be very long. And this is going to be something I'll trust him with. And I'm going to see if he'll continue to walk with me. Because I need to see like I saw with Abraham. And I have to say what I said of Abraham. Now I know. There are times in every one of our stories where God looks at us and we get to show him our faith. And when we show him we're not going anywhere, he looks at us and he says, now I know. You've proven that to me. You've proven that you could have and you didn't. You're still here. And he began to weep and he began to move forward in the story. And he said, I'm going to call him to evangelize. And that's when he stopped and he skipped a huge portion of the book and he went to the last page and he wrote one sentence destined for heaven he took that book brother Ben and he took a leather strap and he wrapped it around the book and I watched him he grabbed a vessel filled with hot wax he poured it on top of that leather strap and he put a seal on it and he sealed it shut and what he did next still moves me to this day he grabbed that book he pulled it near to his chest and he began to weep and intercede over it and I heard him say I'm praying
praying that his faith fails him not. I'm praying that he will live this out because I'm going to trust him with his own will. I can't make anything that I've written happen. He has to choose it. And I saw the angels gather around and pray over this book. And he tossed it over the side of the balcony. And I dove off of his shoulder in this vision. And I said to myself, I said, i got to have everything that's written in that book. I want everything that he said I would be. I want to see those unseen pages. And I want to live them out. I want to know what the future holds. I want to see it. And I was falling towards this book as it was falling towards the sky. And I heard my mother in this vision. She began to pray and she said, God, if you'll give me a son, whether he's a priest or a prophet to the nations, I'll dedicate him to you. And I heard God say to her, I'll give her the book of A.J. Holloway. And I saw my mom, she nurtured this little baby. And then all of a sudden the vision changed and I was 12 years old and I watched my mom. She handed me that book. And when I grabbed that book in the vision, I tore that wax seal off the top and the vision ended. And after three days of silence, I finally spoke and I said, God, what are you showing me? What are you trying to tell me? I can't compute everything that I've just seen. And his words from heaven was this. He said, every book you saw, is every human in history. And he said, every one of those books on that shelf is unique. They're not all written the same way yours is, but they're no less powerful. They're all gonna be powerful. No matter how long or short, all of them I have great pleasure in. Marvelous are those works that I have up there. My soul knows it right well. And he spoke these words to me. He said, every one of those books ends the way yours does, son. And I finally got frustrated and I said, God, that's not true. That's not true. I said, there are people dying lost every day and there are people that are going to hell. Your word itself says that hell hath enlarged itself. I said, that cannot be true. And I felt God's voice begin to tremble in my spirit. And he said, I'm aware of that. But that's not what I wrote. I said, God, why? Why are people choosing that if that's not what you wrote? Why are people doing these things if that's not what's written of them? He said, it has everything to do with that wax seal I put on top. I said, well, God, what is that wax seal? What is that wax seal? He said, when I wrote that book, I sealed it shut and I wrapped it with your will. He said, everything in that book will come to pass. If you can learn, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He said, when you can live that lifestyle, I can turn every page that I've written. And he said, I've written some good stuff in your life. He said, I know there's some dark chapters. He said, but there's some really good ones coming in the future. And I want you to be assured of that. And he spoke these words to me. He said, why are you so stressed about evangelizing? I said, God, you know why I am. You know, my, you know my needs before I even ask them. He said, I know. That's why I've given you this vision today. He said, don't you realize that I'm the one who wrote travel in the book? Aren't you aware that I'm the one who wrote go all throughout North America ministering in that book? He said, so if I wrote it, don't you think it's going to be all right? If I put it in the book, don't you think it's going to work? 
He said, why are you so stressed? He said, if a pastor doesn't have you back, it's because I didn't put them in your future. If they continue to have you back, it's because I've woven two books together. He said, you have not a thing to worry about. He said, for all to whom I will send you, you will go. And everything I have asked you to say, you will say. And don't tell me that you're too young because I put my words in your mouth already. You don't have to worry about anything. This is why I don't stress, what am I going to preach tonight? What am I going to preach tonight? What am I going to preach tonight? I just live my life in that book. I live my life obeying him. I live my life obeying his will. I study, I pray, I prepare, and I am a firm believer that when I get to the church, God's going to put a word in me because he wants you to be, he wants you to hear the word of God more than I want to say it. He wants you to to be edified more than I want you to be edified. He wants to use me more than I want to be used. If he, if I never travel again, that means he's changing the chapter and I'm going to move right into something else. I don't know what the future holds, but I sure know that the book's in his hands. I don't have to know what's on the future pages. Just as long as the book was written by him, I'm okay with it. I trust it. I believe it. There is no anxiety in me anymore. I had fear come over me the past few weeks and I kept telling myself, God, you gave me that vision. You gave me that vision vision and God I believe that there's still pages out in front of me I had the worst fear of death come all over me the past few weeks I have been crippled with the fear of death and I went into prayer and I said God this thing is taking me down I'm stressed out and he said you remember the vision he said I still got a lot of pages out in front of you and as long as those pages are out in front of you there's nothing's going to take you out of this planet other than your will if you get outside my will that's on you but if you stay in this story you stay in my will you do what I've called you to do I'm going to lead you everywhere I want you to go. You don't have to worry about a thing, people. You don't have to stress about a thing. You don't have to worry about, oh, is this end time revival going to really work? If you get in the book, it's going to. It's end time revival is going to work. I just want to be in the middle of it. He's going to have an end time revival. That doesn't mean I'm going to be a part of it. I will be a part of it, though, as long as I'm doing what he has called me to do. But you're going to have to break your will. He's the author. And he's let you choose if he's the finisher. You're going to have to learn how to say, I don't know why that was written. I don't know why you didn't bring me to this point sooner. If he wanted to, he would have. But he didn't because it's what he wrote. Because he has a divine reason and a purpose. Me and Bishop Williams, we've been talking. And we talked last night. And you explained to me. You said, I don't know why God didn't fill me with the Holy Ghost until I was 34. And But you said, but I know why now. Because I've talked with some people. And I understand that if he would have done it before, the plan would have gotten all out of whack. You know the story. You know the book. That's why God has trusted you with authority. That's why you're walking in divine authority with God. That's why you're in the will of God. That's why this whole thing's working. That's why there's peace in our midst. There should be no anxiety in our lives when we get a hold of this revelation, when we realize that all the days fashioned before me when there was yet none of them, when we realize, God, you've got this whole thing mapped out. You've got growth planned for the Apostolic Worship Center. You've got in time gifts and authority and you've got fruit that's going to grow in me all of that is out in front of me I just need to learn the basic steps of nevertheless the will of God is so easy we make it so complicated the will of God is simple all you need to learn how to do is die 
All you need to learn how to do is say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And guess what? When you do that, he does his job. He, he publishes what he wrote. We're the ones that are overcomplicating this thing. Am I supposed to go to school here? Am I supposed to go to college there? Am I supposed to marry that person? Am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to do that? Am I called to do this? Am I a prophet or an apostle? All of that's settled. It's already written. It's already in the book. This is why Romans 8, 28, musicians come. It says, and we know, hear these, hear these words from Paul, and we know. He doesn't say, and we think. We guess. And we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, future knew, already saw, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predetermined, already had it planned out, already saw it, what it could be, to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, Paul says, he's saying, and to make this point stronger, he uses the phrase or the word moreover. Moreover, again I say, let me stress this point, I say, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these, we talked about it last night, he justified I already had redemption planned for you. I already had birth planned for you. I had a justification in advance for you. I just needed you to partner with it. And those he justified, he also sanctified. And those he sanctified, hear this, he glorified. He glorified. Man of God, why are you stressing? Woman of God, why are you worried? Why are you doubting? What, what, what's the problem? Where's the stress at? Where's the anxiety at? Oh God, I don't know if you're going to heal him. If he doesn't, it's not written. I've learned that the hard way. That's why if I had hope in this life only, I would be miserable. But the healing he didn't perform, he went on to the next part. He said, okay, I didn't heal him. And I said, I, I grieved about it. But I stand on this. Okay, you didn't heal him. But you brought him to heaven. You brought my little boy to heaven. So what are you stressed about? Why are you worried? Is he going to use me? Is he going to operate in me? Is he going to allow me to do this and that and that and such? Is he going to, am I ever going to be able to teach a Bible study? Yes. 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 It's already written. It's already written. He is going to use you. 
He's going to operate through you. He is going to perform the miraculous out of you if it's in that book. Your hardest job, though, is right now, God, do whatever you want in me, whatever you have to do, whatever process you have that gets me conformed into your image, I will do that. Whatever I have to do to move this thing forward, whatever I have to be, God, I'll be that. I just want to be right smack dab in the middle of what you're doing. Stop worrying about how this is going to work out. Stop worrying about, did that prophet miss it because he prophesied a big harvest in our church? That's None of that's the point. The point is you getting in character. The point is you stop changing the lyrics and the lines and start saying, God, I'm not changing anything. I'm not going to make myself anything. I'm not going to call myself to anything. Whatever you've designed and called me to be and do, it's already pre-written, and I'm going to step right off into it. But the alternative. You can do this your way. The people that cried out, give us Barabbas. And Jesus sits there silent. Well, if Barabbas is what you want, and Barabbas is what you can have. He is a gentleman, and he is confident in what he wrote. So he is not going to push himself on any of you. He's a groom. And so by being a groom, forcing himself on his bride would be likened to spiritual rape. And he will never do that. What he will do is he will bid you come like Abraham. And he said, I'm not going to force you to kill Isaac. I'm not going to force you to walk up that mountain. I'm not going to force you to sharpen the knife. I'm not going to force you to take it in your hand. I'm just going to ask it of you, and I'm going to sit by, and I'm going to hide my face from you until you show me your face. And when Abraham was up there, like a bride, he lifted his veil, and God looked at him. He said, oh, now I know that you trust the name. Now I know that you trust the narrative. Now I know. That's never what I wanted you to do. I just needed to see that you would do it. And in the meantime, I'll turn my face away to give you an opportunity to show me yours. And when we run after him with our will and we choose him, he looks at us and he says, now I know. Now I know. Now I see that you really want this. Now I will accomplish in you all that I've written to accomplish. Do you know what Barabbas is? It's an Aramaic phrase. You already know part of the, the phrase. Abbas, father. Bar is the Aramaic word son. The phrase is son of a father. And Pilate was so smart. And it was a political coup where he gets up and he presents the people. Okay, we've got a man here claiming to be Jesus, son of God. And over here we've got just some son of a father. Pick. If you read the books, of, of the, the writings of Josephus, Josephus tells us that... Barabbas' first name was Jesus. Now, before you get all freaked out, Jesus is a very common name. It's a very common name. It's the Hebrew name Joshua, actually. It's, just, it's, it's a common Israeli name, but nobody ever fulfilled the name. And so people that get bothered by like, well, that, how, how could his name be Jesus? I thought Jesus was unique. What's different about our Jesus then? <laughs> he fulfilled his name. He saved He's the only Jesus in history that died and resurrected. That's what makes him different. So you don't have to be bothered by this. But he brings up Jesus Barabbas, 
and Jesus, Son of God. And they said, which one do you want? They cried out, give us the pseudo-Jesus. Give us the knockoff story. Give us the one that lines up with our politics because he's killing Romans and we don't like the Romans and Jesus is here to die for him. Give us that guy. Give us the one that lines up with our will. And the scariest thing is, t- is transpiring in the, in the text. Jesus sits there silent because he is waiting to see. And I believe that Acts 2, the upper room with 120, he looks down and he says, now I know. Now I know. Now I can use Peter the way I wrote him to be used. Because now I know. He walked away, but he's back. He's back. He's dying to his will. He didn't choose the pseudo-Jesus that fit his politics. He didn't choose the former occupation of fishing. He chose me. He's in the upper room. Now I know you're going to preach Pentecost and you're going to reach the Gentiles, Peter. It's what I've designed you to do. Now I know, Philip, you will preach even if your story ends today with stones. You're still going to preach what I asked you to preach. Now I know, John, now I know that you're not a son of thunder. You're actually like me. You're more like me than you ever thought because I saw it in the future. That's why I called you, John. Matthew, you used to work for Rome and now I know, now you work for me. You used to collect taxes. Now you collect souls. Now I know. I always knew that about you. And you died to yourself and now you're going to write a gospel about me in the future. Now I know. Now everything I've written on your life can come to pass. Now I know, Paul, because you're willing to go and study my word for three years in Arabia. Now I know I'm seeing your face. Now I can send you and allow you to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Now I know your future is going to be more profound. I'm going to use you in a powerful way, Paul. And there... In this room today, there's no less John. There's no less Paul. Those weren't the only characters in the Bible. If it was, then God would have just ended this thing and he would have raptured it in Acts 2. But he didn't. We're still here in 23. And so that means that there's a John in this room. There's a Paul in this room. There is a Eunice in this room. There's a Phoebe in this room. There's a Timothy in this room. There are Matthews in this room. There are men and women of God in this room. And God is just saying, stop stressing how this end time thing's gonna work. Stop stressing about who the president's gonna be. Stop stressing about the, the corrupt condition of the nation. Stop worrying about Fox and CNN. My answer that I'm ready to publish in the earth is in my church. The government that you think is in control isn't because the government's actually on my shoulder and the government is you, my church. This thing works in the end. I want you to stand. Brother Williams, I want you to stand up and I want you to, I want you to war in tongues. There is, a, there is a block. There is a block in this room tonight that's trying to stop them from getting this revelation. Brother Walker, I want you to begin warring in the spirit. Brother, I want you to start warring in the spirit. There's something that's trying to harm and hinder you from getting this revelation right now. I feel there's a veil over your eyes. I want you, if you're a prayer warrior, I want you to stretch forth your hands. To those of you who have been battling anxiety and frustration and you're wondering, how is God ever going to use me? I want you to come to these altars right now. I want you to run to these altars right now. If you feel like God has a plan for your life and it's not coming to its full fruition, I want you to run to these altars. I don't want you just sitting there 
there. I want you to come to these altars right now. There is a revelation that's trying to pour into the body. I don't want you bowing down, no. I want you to come up here and I want you to stretch forth your hand. I don't want you kneeling. I want you to stand before the throne right now with boldness. There is something that God's trying to do in this body right now. There's something that God's trying to do through you. The Bible studies that were supposed to be taught in this church are supposed to be going forward in 23. There are Bible study teachers in this room. There are baptismal pools that are sitting in your house called bathtubs that God is waiting on you to sanctify and baptize souls in in the name of Jesus. There are people that have been called to walk in the gifts of the Spirit. It is time for you to walk in the gifts of the Spirit. There is fruit that is supposed to be produced in your life that is getting ready to produce in your life. There is joy and there is peace that is supposed to dwell within you that needs to sprout up tonight with life. There are lost loved ones connected to this church that have a profound calling of end time power and proportion that's waiting on you to go and reach them. It's time we get in character. It's time we stop worrying. It's time we stop stressing. And it is time right now that we begin walking in our calling. There's prophets in this room. There's apostles. There are evangelists that are called into this city here in this room right now. There's people with a burden to pick people up for church. But you've been waiting on the right job to come to you before you do it. It's time to just say, nevertheless, 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 not my wheel, not my wheel. This isn't my vessel. This isn't my vessel. Whatever you want to do in me, do it, God. Whatever you've called me to do, I'll do it, God. Come on, that's it. Prayer warriors, I want you to wrestle in the spirit. I want you to wrestle. There's a breakthrough that's happening in this room. There's somebody I can feel in the spirit. There's someone in the spirit. I can feel it. You're going to listen to this message on the podcast. In a few weeks, you're going to come across this by happenstance. I'm speaking directly to you right now, driving in your car. I'm speaking directly to you that God has been reaching for you. God has been calling towards you, and you've been running. It is time that you submit to it. He's reaching out to you right now. He wants you to pull that car over, and he wants you to begin to confess to him that you've been running and he's going to reinstate you into all the things that you have been called to do and all the time you thought you lost he is going to reinstate it he's going to speed it up because the harvest is now I want you to be edified right now I'm not speaking this word to anyone in this room I'm speaking this word to someone a few weeks in the future that's listening to this in their car I want you to know that God is speaking directly to you because he saw you in the future on this night tonight he saw you. He